It's like a snake that you can't kill. You know, you think you've cut the head off and it grows another head. Racism is like that. It requires the most subtle analysis and the most careful analysis to see how it always re-manifests. And the people who understood that best have been black intellectuals um, and and now uh, other intellectuals of color. And white evangelicals are leading the effort to suppress the voices of the people who understand this best and are attempting to uh, help us get past it. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to season two. I'm your co-host, Gary Allen, and I want to start the show today with just a couple of quick announcements. First, we are sad that Kelly isn't going to be joining us today. She's had some technical difficulties at her home in Vancouver, British Columbia due to a big storm. So Kelly, we hope you're well, we hope you're safe, and we look forward to hearing your sweet voice next time. And second of all, I want to pause to say thank you to our friends and supporters on Patreon who make Holy Heretics possible. Folks like Stephanie Tomio and John Zidoff, Courtney Hoffman, Allison Daniel, Joe Freiberger, Alicia Costello, and so many others who are signed up to be Patreon supporters. If you would like to join them, feel free to just make your way over to sophiasociety.org slash podcast and sign up today. If you do, uh, you'll get access to every episode about three days in advance. You'll also have an exclusive monthly invitation to the book club that we host, as well as our new course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. So I hope you'll join us, and if you do, we're just honored uh, to be on this journey with you. All right, enough advertising. If there is one show or one episode that fulfills the very reason why we started this podcast in the first place, it's probably this one. At some point, almost all of us woke up and realized that we had a moral obligation to deconstruct the faith that we were given, primarily because it just looks nothing like Jesus. And whether that tipping point was the weirdness of biblical inerrancy or the indifference to the environment or neo-Calvinism, purity culture, racism, LGBTQ discrimination, male dominance, or even Christian nationalism, there's an entire culture of conscientious objectors who can no longer stomach not only what white evangelicalism has become, but frankly, what it's always been. So we all call ourselves deconstructionists, but I, I think there's a better term. It's, it's we are conscientious objectors. But sometimes it's difficult to explain why or what we are objecting to. And so to help us with that and to help us with understanding life after evangelicalism, we are joined today by Dr. David Gushy. Dr. Gushy is an ethicist and pastor author, and advocate. He is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's the author of over 25 books. His most recognized works are Kingdom Ethics, 
the sacredness of human life and changing our mind all about LGBTQIA plus inclusion, which we're going to talk about with him. His newest book, After Evangelicalism, charts a theological and ethical course for post-evangelical Christians. So, David, I want to just start the show today by going ahead and jumping into the deep end. Um, can you share just a little bit about why you left evangelicalism as someone who is a scholar and a faithful follower of Jesus of Nazareth? The fundamental reason why I have left evangelicalism is I believe that at least U.S. white evangelicalism has jumped the tracks in terms of being a faithful path for following Jesus. Mm. And I want to follow Jesus faithfully, and I've concluded that something has gone pretty wrong with this branch of the Christian community, which is only one branch in only one country, though, I mean, there are expressions around the world. That's a different conversation. In 2014, well, I'd had some warnings before this, but I'll just start it here. In 2014, I decided to tackle the LGBT issue, and I wrote a book called Changing Our Mind, which carefully, and I hope biblically, argued for LGBT inclusion. Mm -hmm. And this, this led to a ferocious reaction and a lot of, uh, get out of here, you, you are a heretic going to hell and leading others astray. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I was pushed out before I realized in reflecting on that experience that that evangelicalism as a whole uh, had some problems. Um, and the, the uh, LGBT issue was only one of the problems. It had to do with broader ways of thinking and of responding to human beings, especially suffering human beings. And so I would say the last seven years has been a reconsideration of that evangelical identity that Ron Sider helped me to embrace all those years ago and a realization that especially U.S. white evangelicalism has, has become toxic and um, that I don't belong in the community. So you might say that the LGBT issue w was a a kick in the pants out the door, but it provided me uh, space to think about the community as a whole and to conclude that I probably didn't belong in what had become, at least, of U.S. white evangelicalism. Okay, David, I think a lot of us intuitively knew something was wrong with our inherited faith tradition, but we either didn't have the language or maybe the courage to uh, process it ourselves, much less to explain it to friends and family. Do you mind just helping us with that? Can you give us some language for why so many of us are leaving evangelicalism? In um, After Evangelicalism, I used the image of a maze on the cover and, and in the book. Uh, this was suggested by a friend when I was sitting down talking about what the book was about, which was essentially multiple problems within evangelicalism that are driving people out the door, or maybe even worse, leading them to, to feeling like they're stuck. They're in the tradition, but the tradition has put them in a stuck or, or trapped place, hmm. um, and that has kind of blocked them from finding Jesus. And so I asked the publisher to put a maze on the cover, and, uh, and in the book I talk about especially young people get stuck in the evangelical maze over multiple problems. And I name everything from purity culture to white supremacism to 
anti-science and sometimes anti-intellectual attitudes broadly to a biblicism in which the only way you can know anything is the Bible. Can't mm. really take seriously other sources um, to uh, embrace of right wing politics as God's way for organizing political life. And then add to that embrace of Trump uh, over the last five years um, to uh I mean, there are other things, but but those are many of them. And and I think that a lot of the children of of this evangelical subculture that I argue has only really been around for 80 years in its in its recognizable American form Hmm. are are leaving um, because of um, either trauma or just conscientious disagreement. (laughs) <laughs> with some or all aspects of the subculture. What's interesting about all those things I just mentioned is none of them, I think, are, are indispensable elements of true Christian faith. Let's say that they are like barnacles that have attached to the ship called evangelicalism. And, and I think they can be dispensed with. And if they are dispensed with, then people can get back to following Jesus. And that's what I hope to encourage in my book. Well, you know, I was... Um, thinking about this as well in prep for our conversation, and it, it feels like that America is obviously, I wouldn't say we're maybe at a crossroads, but we are definitely changing. We are, the ground beneath our feet is shaking. The The old way of doing things, um, whether it be white male only authority, whether it be misogyny, whether it be patriarchy, um, white supremacy. I mean, all of the normative factors that have created life for the privileged among us are being questioned. Uh, they, 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 they were questioned by the Me Too movement. They have been questioned by the rise of militant and very outspoken racism from the president of the United States all the way down to his henchmen. And it feels like that there is a certain segment or sector of society that is utterly terrified of what's next. Um, And most of those, I I know I'm going to be general, but most of those are white Christian boomers who have really gotten comfortable uh, being the center of attention, right? They've gotten comfortable being a part of a movement that really supported them and pushed a lot of other people to the side. And what seems like is happening is then those folks are then looking for absolution for their response back. You know, they they're they're terrified, they're afraid, and all they know how to do is react. And they find this guy on a white horse who says he's going to protect them. And so they are all in bed with authoritarianism in order to simply maintain the status quo. And then suddenly you you involve religion in this conversation as the absolution for that. And then you have individuals like um, uh, Flynn uh, last night that I saw was promoting a very militant form of Christian nationalism where you have the American flag and the Christian flag storming the Capitol. All of those things seem to be connected in, in a very unique moment in our history I know that was a huge kind of prologue to a question, but what, how, how do you define this current movement, and what do you see from an academic perspective 
Because that's very different than just an emotional perspective and from a personal perspective. You study this for a living. Um, what are you seeing from that seat? The only thing I would I would probably amend about your description is that I would probably put a longer historical time frame on it. Mm. Um, I think that, well, I like to quote this line from Franklin Roosevelt. So I, I, I think it's important to see this as not just a Republican problem. Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, social justice oriented president, once said uh, to two of his cabinet members, one was Catholic and the other was Jewish. He said, he said, America is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation. Everyone else is here by sufferance. Mm. And this was to, as I recall in the story, this was to tamp down their challenging some of his policies or whatever. Um, so that was like 1943. Okay. So that was 80 years ago. And the idea that, that this country belongs to white Christian people, notably, of course, white Christian men, hmm. white straight Christian men, uh, is is the founding power structure of our country. I mean, and all you have to do is think of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and, and the power structure in most towns and most businesses and most colleges and most organizations that most of us grew up with, right? Right. There was always there was always that white guy in charge. <laughs> right. You know, and especially, by yeah. the way, in Colorado Springs, where I live, <laughs> it's, <you> know, <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, all right. the white men, uh, you know, white men need a safe place too. So Colorado Springs, there you go. <laughs> um, so um, so that has been being challenged by everybody, not white and male and straight for the entirety of our country mm. and um, and in general uh, the white guys the white Christian guys have managed to stay in charge but but have taken significant losses if you're thinking of a zero-sum game of we have power and other people listen to us mm. they've, they've, they've taken waves of losses you know from abolition to uh, the civil rights movement um, to Barack Obama as president take that you know, right, the right. the uh, the waves of immigration from all around the world. Right. So the pluralism in religion and in ethnicity and in nationality that has become uh, defining of our country, the women's movements in various waves, um, the the um, the gay rights movement beginning in the 60s. Meanwhile, there have been erosions in traditional Christian preeminence, for example, prayer in schools, you know, getting banned by the Supreme Court and um, and also rejections of traditional Christian values on things like um, marriage and sex and and, you know, so on. So what I think has happened is a ferocious reaction that joins together worries over loss of power. Mm. And worries over loss of Christian morality. And you put those both together, you have the ingredients of a ferocious reaction. Mm. And every time there is a significant advance for diversity and for a decentering of white straight guys, there is a significant pushback. Yeah. 
So what I think happens with Trump is Trump is the anti-Obama. He he embodies um, disgust. That's not too strong a word because he no. often communicated disgust. Right. He he embodies disgust at the very possibility that somebody like Barack Obama could be elected president of the United States twice. Right. And and on top of that disgust is every other disgust that you want to load on to that kind of reactionary thing. So I think that Trump is, is a historical figure and that we, people will be studying him. If there is America, the United States of America <laughs> in 200 years, people will be studying him as kind of like the George Wallace um, figure who succeeded in getting the presidency and coalescing a massive national movement around him. There's never been anybody who quite did that. There were people who got pieces of it anywhere from Lyndon LaRouche to, to uh, George Wallace, to even Charles Lindbergh, you know, back in the day, who was mm -hmm. leaned fascist, you know? Right. Right. But, but Trump has, has uh, embodied and advanced the reactionary narrative, <clears throat> but what could not have been anticipated. Well, maybe it could have been, was that 85% of white evangelicals would go over the cliff with him. Right. And and very willingly go over the cliff. Not like hold my nose, but yeah, this is my boy. We're riding in a battle together. Right. Now, when you actually study what happens in 2015, 2016, it didn't start that way. There was some Christian concern. There were, um, you know, Christian evangelical figures who were like, eh, not really. I mean, that personal morality is pretty shaky. And, right. Um, you know, the language and, and, you know, the harshness of the rhetoric. Uh, there's There were other options. They could have picked Mike Huckabee. They could have picked even Ted Cruz, who, you know, attempted to embody that kind of mm -hmm. slightly softer Christian conservative. Right. Well, even you know, Mark, Mark Rubio Mark for Rubio, a while. Right. Like, okay, yeah. he's somewhat likable, sort of. Right. So they, they kind of went, they bypassed people like that and landed with Trump. And then once Trump solidified his grip on the heart of the people... It has been unbreakable since mm -hmm. that time. So I, I like to say, I think there's a dynamism here and that there's a reason why the, the uh, anti-evangelical reaction has become so intense in the last four or five years. It's because Trump has both unveiled problems that were already there and has made them measurably worse. Mm. One of those problems is this whole intersectionality of race and evangelicalism, um, right. and in particular how evangelical subculture is in many ways rooted in white supremacy. And nobody really wants to admit that, but I, I think it's true. Can can you unpack that for us a little bit? Um, sure. Just that whole connection of race, white supremacy, um, and the evangelical movement. There is no intrinsic reason why classic evangelical theology, um, the Bible is infallible, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, be converted and be saved, uh, and be a faithful disciple and share your faith with others. There's no reason that should have had anything to do with race. Mm. People all over the world have embraced that winsome you know, you can challenge different pieces of it, but that winsome classic Protestant message that has been preached at innumerable revivals for many, many centuries, right? Um, 
But the entanglement of of European and American Christianity with white supremacism has been the subject of considerable and really good scholarship over you know, at least the last 50 years, but especially the, you know, the last generation. And I think the best way to trace the story is back to the colonial enterprise of the 15th and 16th and 17th and 18th century. Hmm. It, it was white Europeans, Europeans beginning to think of themselves not only as Christian, not only as superior, but also as white. And uh, spreading all over the world to conquer civilize, Christianize, and enslave all in there together um, without any problem. Mm. And, and, and then each country where the Europeans went developed its own distinctive kinds of racial hierarchies and racial problems. In the U.S., it was especially dominated, of course, by chattel slavery, uh, which lasted so long here, you know, 255 years and only ended with the Civil War. And it's very clear from the neo-Confederate kind of imagery that has resurfaced in recent years, the Confederacy and the dream of that kind of race-based uh, authoritarian society never died. It never right. died. Right. Um, also, uh, historians like Paul Harvey uh, have, have shown that during the evangelical movements and awakenings that tore all through the South, especially in like the 18th, late 18th and 19th centuries, there were pivotal moments in which born again or Holy Spirit experiences of community. And you know what happens when God, I mean, we used to talk about this, when God really worked on people and they, <laughs> they, they were shattered and mm -hmm. they're the Holy Spirit fell and we got convicted of sin. And this happened during these awakenings. And regularly people would say, you know, this racist stuff and this slavery stuff is wrong. Right. But Harvey shows that ultimately racism, first slavery, and then Jim Crow and segregation prevailed over the spirit of God in 19th century and early 20th century and every other time. Uh evangelical religion that when evangelicals had the opportunity, and this is not just evangelicals, it's pretty much white people in general. Right. When, when we had the opportunity to repent, we, we didn't I actually talk about that in this after evangelicalism book, you know, many opportunities we had to repent the many historical notable moments where it was possible and we didn't do it. Mm. And so, so Harvey says that evangelicalism and racism structured racism, white supremacism, grew up together in America and they intertwined kind of like, uh, I don't know, picture plants uh, or trees that get are so close that they intertwine. You can't tell where one leaves off and the other one begins. Right. And that's what happened. And so, and because we never repented and we never cut down the racism tree, it has, it has stayed there and it has, uh, you know, there have been breakthrough moments. There have been victories. There have been times where Christians understood what Christianity really required. <laughs> but when push comes to shove, um, white supremacism has has not been repented, and it continually re resurges. Um, it's in. It's not always, you know, people with, you know, with tiki torches and and uh, people at rallies and KKK. It's a lot. A lot of times, a lot more subtle than that. Right. 
but it, but it doesn't go away. Just one example. How about the birth of, of all these Christian schools <laughs> in the 60s and 70s? Um, and the stated reason for these schools was we want to give our kids a good Christian education. Mm-hmm. But the but the clear historical context for the birth of these schools is we don't want our kids to go to school with black people. Right. And just so so often that so many of those schools were in the South. Right. Uh, right. They were once yeah. segregation ended. It's like, well, wait a minute. Well, let's 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 figure out a way to segregate um, and do it on a under a different umbrella. Yeah. It's, it's like a snake that you can't kill. You know, you think you've cut the head off and it grows another head. Racism is like that. It requires the most subtle analysis and the most careful analysis to see how it always re-manifests. And the people who understood that best have been black intellectuals um, and, and now uh, other intellectuals of color. And part of what has gone wrong with white evangelicals these days is White evangelicals are leading the effort to suppress the voices of the people who understand this best and are attempting to uh, help us get past it. Mm. So who should we be listening to um, in in terms of this particular conversation? We should be listening to spiritually grounded. Here's here's my evangelicalism coming out. Um, (laughs) Spiritually grounded, still committed Christians who some of them are white. And a lot of them are are black and Latino, Latina and Asian, Asian American, who who can clearly blow the whistle on the racism and the way it has worked itself out in our in our politics and in our church life mm. and who are proposing ways forward. Just names include these days people like um, Jamar Tisby and um Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and, yep. and Thea Butler and William Barber mm-hmm. and Soon Chan Ra of North Park Seminary and uh, Grace Kim. I mean, there's so many people. They're the people I, I, I get to deal with um, as colleagues in um, my religion scholarship, and they are brilliant and they're doing great work. Uh, Miguel de la Torre is another example. Mm-hmm. So there, there's lots of people. Uh, if for your show notes, we you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm, I'm writing all this down. Yeah, you know, give you some <laughs> some of these folks. Um, the literature is growing, and there's also classic voices like Frederick Douglass and James Baldwin, uh, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, um, uh, Sojourner Truth, and Ida B. Wells. Um, you know, people been and then the novelists. Um, I, I did a, a dive into African American novels or novels by great African-American writers. And that's uh, a chapter on that is in my news book that's coming out called Introducing Christian Ethics. But mm-hmm. it's Toni Morrison and, and um, Alice Walker and Langston Hughes, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, uh, James Baldwin, Ernest Gaines, Octavia Butler. But you know what? Where in evangelical subculture were we ever encouraged oh, to read right. these voices? right. Nope. How many of those names are even recognizable to most people in evangelicalism? Right. And and not only that, now we are uh, seeing the pushback against cr- critical race theory uh, led primarily by white evangelicals who in many ways don't want to take a long, hard look at that colonial past that, that you referenced earlier. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. It's just a silencing of voices that don't even allow us to – to hear the cries of lament, to hear the cries of marginalization, and we can then assume, well, everybody's fine. It's okay. You know, I think shame and defensiveness 
go hand in hand. Uh, I think in politics, Reinhold Niebuhr said a long time ago that group activity tends to be more stupid than individual activity. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> that and the moral moral groups tend to have less moral capacity. Groups tend to have less moral capacity than individuals do. Mm-hmm. So you get a group of people at a school board meeting and you have them shouting about critical race theory. Um, you know, and it becomes a mob. Whereas if you get an individual and, and maybe they're willing to read a book by, you know, Alice Walker, then maybe they're willing to read another one in the quiet of their home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so I, but, but shame is basically, I think a, a lot of what the white reaction looks like is, is suppressed shame. How dare you say my people did something wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, as you're talking about my grandparents, my parents, me, my uncle, my, myself. And and what I'm going to do with the shame is I'm going to get really defensive and mm-hmm. really angry. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm going to blame all those awful liberals for making my kids have to engage this history. We should be proud of our country. You know, all right. of that. Right. Yeah. So. Right. So Christians, we have a doctrinal, a little doctrine. It's called the doctrine of sin. We have another little doctrine. It's called repentance. <laughs> you know, like the idea that every human being is a sinner and that groups can be really like big sinners, <laughs> really big sinners, and that individuals and, if possible, groups might need to repent of sin. And so we're never above having our sinfulness challenged. I was taught that when I was a new born again Christian, but that appears to have been lost. Yeah. Well, not to mention um, the whole notion of reparations. That feels pretty biblical to me, you know. Um, but of course, that's it's a whole, part, yeah, whole other story. The point of the subject, yeah. but it's part of the process of of making things right. Uh, if mm-hmm. you throw a baseball through the neighbor's window, uh, you're, it's probably not going to be enough to say sorry. You're probably right. going to need to pay to have the window repaired, right? And <laughs> right, and that's part of how you show that you are really genuinely aware that you've wronged. You mm-hmm. you do something to fix it, and mm-hmm. you know. So so we're. You know, I just want to say that all of this, all of this is pretty obviously a drift away from the the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels and the best moments of Christianity. And that's one reason why people are leaving. Right. They don't have to leave. I'm arguing they don't have to leave Jesus behind. Jesus is not the problem. Right. So of all the issues we've discussed, um, including right wing politics, racism, um, power struggle, all the things that I think many of us recognize pretty quickly in our deconstruction journey, there's one last brick that tends to be the final one to topple over. And you addressed it way back at the beginning of this conversation, and and that's the notion of your LGBTQIA plus inclusion. Can you talk through that? Because here's what I hear from those who are pushing back against the deconstruction community. They're telling us, you know what, you guys are just doing this because you don't like rules, you want to sin, you want to just go your own way. And for the most part, I kind of look at them and go, well, actually, no, it, it's it's really the exact opposite. It's what you've been saying for the last few minutes that when I look at the historical Jesus, I, I see someone that doesn't look anything like white modern evangelicalism. And yet we get to this kind of final 
domino to potentially fall, which is homosexuality, same-sex issues, and LGBTQIA inclusion in the church. How do we help those individuals see that this too is a, a Jesus conversation, that, that the reason why there's inclusion isn't because we just want to throw out the rules. It's because we're following the radically inclusive uh, way of Christ. Here is, well, here's where the heaviest lift mm-hmm. right. appears to be, right? Uh, well, I mean, the, the racism thing is a very heavy lift. It's a, a, a heavy lift in a different way. I think we've explored that, but um, and it also gets into how one understands scripture and more broadly, how do we know what mm-hmm. we know, right? Um, so, I mean, when I, I wrote Changing Our Mind in 2014, and before that, I had been on the record as, you know, kind of a, a nice traditionalist on the LGBTQ issue. Um, and it wasn't something I thought that much about, but. I accepted the tradition that this was a pretty much open and shut case, you know, right. Romans one, et cetera. Right. I have concluded that one aspect of, of at least very common handling of scripture by fundamentalists and evangelicals is what I would describe as a flat Bible in which all the verses purportedly carry equal weight and, and, it is wrong to juxtapose something like the example of Jesus or the way of Jesus or the spirit of Jesus against biblical texts that might lead you in directions that are seem more exclusive than that. So essentially, um, there's these six passages, the only ones that mention anything like same-sex activity, and we know what they are, right? Leviticus and and Romans 1 and so on. And, and there they sit. And so, you know, you pick up a concordance and you look up the word homosexuality if you don't know much about this. And you see six verses and you read them and they're all negative right. And voila, you have your answer. I, I almost cannot fault kind of simple people for, for doing their, their biblical work that way because, in essence, everything in the subculture trained them to do that work that way. But then here comes... You know, the 14-year-old girl and or the 19-year-old boy who says, you know, I think I might be gay or, or transgender. And, um, and the only repertoire is, well, I mean, mm-hmm. let me open my concordance again. And wow, there it is. It's still there. Leviticus 18 and Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. And, and two, two moves are impossible. One is taking seriously the self-report of the life experience of that 14-year-old, say, lesbian girl or 19-year-old gay, you know, adolescent or whatever. You you can't take that seriously because that's not relevant data for thinking biblically. Um, And the other thing that can't be taken seriously is any claim like, look how Jesus treated outsiders. Look how Jesus treated those who were viewed as sinners. Look at how he treated Roman soldiers and children and bleeding women and prostitutes and tax collectors. Uh, And the answer is, ah, you're just, you know, that's just emotional. You're leaping away from the clear meaning of the text to to give me the soft, inclusive Jesus who doesn't have any standards. And 
And there the situation stands at an impasse. And so one of the things I do in after evangelicalism is I say, we do not have to, in fact, the, the greatest traditions of the church never had a flat Bible like that. We had a Bible in which Jesus was lifted up as central because we are, after all, Christians, right? Followers of Jesus. And so his teachings and his way, his, his, um, his teaching about the kingdom of God and his way of building community should be authoritative in a way that Leviticus 18 is not. Um, but the other thing I say is, repeatedly in the history of Christianity, we have run into trouble when we cannot process external data in the world that challenges our formulations. And, and that has included um, struggles with science, like uh, how old is the earth, uh, or struggles, or how many days of creation, or any of that stuff, or evolution, or... or um, anything related to sexuality that goes beyond, I read in Genesis <laughs> 1, God made them male and female, right? Um, so I argue in the book for a Jesus-centered hermeneutic to inform a faithful community and an incorporation of real-life experience and the findings of the relevant sciences, not that they're infallible, but they're part of the conversation, and it was really, it was human beings who, de who, who uh, destabilized my complacent traditional view. Human beings who were gay or lesbian or trans and who were Christians or had been pushed out of churches who made me reconsider that older framework of a flat Bible with six verses that are relevant and nothing else is relevant. Um, now, what I teach is all I'm asking is that LGBTQ people should be included in the life of the church on the same terms as anybody else, and their their covenantal marital relationship should be recognized mm -hmm. on the same terms as anybody else. I'm not I'm not advocating for free love, right? Or you know, people you know uh, polygamy or or uh, polyamory. Uh, my my social my sexual ethic is actually very traditional. It's marital. It's covenantal, but it is able to make the switch to include gay people. And lesbian people who exist in the world and who want such relationships as well. So that's the move that I make. Um, but the way, the way, um, I mean, just basically processing the feedback <clears throat> of evangelicals and fundamentalists to my Changing Our Mind book was one of the major impetuses for realizing that inerrantist or flat Bible or fundamentalist hermeneutics would never get you to inclusion in LGBT issues just never would and but i don't want to become a loosey-goosey and never have become a loosey-goosey anything goes liberal who just kind of laughs at oh paul he was just a sexist or we don't need the bible anymore yeah. you know that's not who i am um and and to me the 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 greatest historical parallel actually has to do with slavery you could never get to an abolitionist position on slavery with <laughs> biblical realism right. or inerrancy. You never could. What was required for that was taking seriously slave experience and voices and then looking at Jesus through those lenses and asking, what does it mean to follow Jesus mm. in relation to slavery? And biblical literalism you know, slaves obey your masters was never going to get you 
to abolitionism. This, by the way, is an Achilles heel for evangelicals and why you will still sometimes hear fundamentalists and evangelicals defend slavery. Yeah. Because right. they know this is a problem. Well, and it's it's a bit of a worship of the text that says, look, it it's 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 sitting above me. I'm sorry. These are the words of God. I I mean, sure, it sounds terrible, but God said it. Um, that I just have to follow it. And that was, again, the, a conversation I was just having this morning with someone who could not get over these six, um, you know, hammer texts that are used as weapons against homosexuals because wow. she could not – she couldn't wrestle with the fact that these are human words in context to a particular historical um, – milieu and not necessarily universal uh, ap applicable uh, issues that have been divinely dictated from God. So, and, and you're right, I think it comes back to what is the Bible, how do we view the Bible, and then how do we engage with the Bible that is appropriate, that's scholarly, that's cautious, um, and also allows us to wrestle with the text. I think this this is the hardest move. Um it shouldn't be hard to uh, renounce toxic masculinity. It shouldn't be hard to renounce white supremacy. Um, mm -hmm. It shouldn't be hard to renounce Trumpism or xenophobia or the hatred of immigrants. Um, those things are clear biblical teachings, length and breadth of the canon. Um, I think this one is harder. It, this one requires more serious engagement with the issue of what is the scripture and how do we interpret it? And I know why it's, I mean, I, I've, I've watched thousands of people wrestle with this issue. Um, I think the movement, the move needs to be made, but um, you might say this is, that's the, the most demanding one in terms of mm -hmm. uh, biblical interpretation, but, but the other one shouldn't be that hard. And, um, and so I, I kind of put them in a little bit different baskets, but still the other piece is even if one is not able to move off of a traditional interpretation, this kind of, contempt speech, hatefulness, demagoguing the LGBTQ issue and such um, is, has also been a characteristic of fundamentalism and evangelicalism, and that also needs to go away as part of the yep. reforms that are needed. Very well time. said. All right, we've got one last question for you. Um, I'm curious for you, you've moved on from evangelicalism. What what path have you taken Um and what does that look like for you spiritually? Well, it helped that I didn't even know to embrace the label evangelical <laughs> until I was about 30 years old. So it was kind of an add-on. It was a very appealing add-on because it had Ron Sider behind it for me. And I got to know a community and I got to, to I mean, I, Every speaking invitation and preaching opportunity. I mean, I was in that world and all. Oh, I mean, there were some lovely moments in it. But, but you know, my two primary religious identifications first was Catholic and then it was Baptist. And I've actually reconnected to Catholicism recently. Uh, my wife is Catholic, so we go to Catholic church together. Um, and the I just moved to a more progressive part of the Baptist community. There and, is and a progressive part of the Baptist community? So, <laughs> oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I there is, for sure. I learned yeah. something new. I love that. Yeah, they're, they're there. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to a church right now that feels very, very uh, kind of small town Southern Baptist, but they got kicked out 
of the Southern Baptist Convention because they oh, welcomed wow. a gay Look couple. So, so they were kicked out. So, um, so what I have done is to leave card-carrying evangelicalism behind. But what's interesting is there's so many other people who are doing the same thing. It's like mm-hmm. a community has come with me. And meanwhile, I had these kind of confessional communities that existed long before that word evangelical was in common use. And they are Catholic and Baptist, and they anchor me. Um, but, but the loss is real, too, because for a long time, I thought evangelicalism was a major force for good in the world. And I identified with that community, and I read those books, and I, and I participated in it as a leader. And all of that is lost mm. to me. And so there's wow. a real grief there, too. But worse, but worse is the sense of, well, how about shame that... I think the greatest bulwark of social and political sin in our country right now is housed in white evangelicalism. Yeah. yeah. And that's just, that's just awful. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty intense about calling that out. Um, But as a human being, I mainly pass the brokenhearted stage into the resolute, um, moving ahead stage with other communities and other friends and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I have found, um, Episcopalianism, um, if that's a big word. And it's so funny because I've noticed that the Episcopal church, at least, uh, here in Colorado Springs, the one we attend is very progressive socially, sexually, theologically, and yet it's also highly conservative as it relates to the liturgy and the Book of Common Prayer and following yeah. this ancient tradition of worship. Mm-hmm. And I like being in that tension. I, I like feeling like I'm rooted to yeah. a, a community of believers who have been doing things for thousands of years or at least hundreds of years together. And I also like the fact that that same space says, oh, well, yeah. Well, you can come in here and do this too. Um, oh, you want to come? Oh, yeah, come on in. And then let's work through our differences together as opposed to leading with, I'm sorry, you have to pass the test before we let you in. And, of course, those tests have evolved to include um, not only just LGBT issues, but racial issues and all kinds of you know gender issues as well. So, yeah, that that's the space I have found myself in and who knows you know I, I don't know what's next i might stay in that space for a long time but i also know that i'm moving i'm changing and evolving and that spiritual pathway will always be open to me to continue to go forward so yeah i think that's a, a great thing you know in in after evangelicalism i i mentioned the episcopal church and i know there's a, a hefty number of evangelicals and post-evangelicals mm-hmm. who've made their way to the episcopal church um, and in fact, I, I know a church here in Atlanta that has had a special outreach mm, to yeah. disaffected evangelicals, you know, kind of, um, you know, because because they're they're everywhere and they're looking for a church home. Yeah, I, I keep I keep telling my priest that I'm like, look, we live in Colorado Springs. It is the Mecca of evangelicalism. And I can tell you that there is a ton of people that have walked out of those doors of that mega mega church over there that will never go back. And Hello, here we are. Like we're we're totally different, and and I think that maybe is one of the the sins of the evangelical subculture is you just don't know that there's another way. Yeah. You you 
we have just believed and and maybe uh, willingly believe that well this is the only way to be Christian and when you leave that space there I think there is this terror of uh oh well I'm out of Christianity it's like no 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 you're not out of Christianity at all you just walked out of one of the doors there's a whole hallway here that you can try out and test out so <laughs> I have so often said that you know it's like um uh, evangelical Christianity was one version of Christianity. Yeah. And there are other versions of Christianity. So find one that doesn't have those problems. It will have different problems, but it won't have those problems. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. Um, but I think fundamentalism in particular uh, reproduces itself in this tragic way for, I mean, if you grew up in those fundamentalist churches um, or, or hardline evangelical, you were told day after day, we have the truth. Yeah. Anybody yeah. who anybody who does not look at it our way is going to hell. So mm-hmm. then when you leave, it's easy to replicate that because it's in your DNA. Right. Which, so it's like, oh, I guess I'm going to hell. I guess right. I've <laughs> left. Uh, I guess I've left the true faith. So why would I try my try another church? Because I'm doomed already. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and so there is there is so much pastoral work needed to help people unlearn that script and learn and, and learn some new possibilities. Wow. I love that. I want to close, but I want to ask you, if you don't mind, just a couple of I, – I, I did say I had one last question a while ago, but that was sort of our last formal question. Would you be up to just some rapid-fire, fun, get-to-know-you-better questions as we close our time together? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So you have become author, scholar, theologian, pastor, but as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? A professional baseball player. Ah, and you live in Atlanta, so you would have just won the World Series, right? I cannot tell you the joy, the abundant joy <laughs> of winning the World Series. And I'd like to express my condolences for the Denver, uh, Colorado Rocky baseball team. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, you guys are doomed out there because yeah, the suck. mountains <laughs> the mountains make it impossible to ever really win out there. So anyway, so yes, <laughs> I am a professional baseball player who never quite got my opportunity. That's what that's oh. why. I'm, I'm sorry. So with that said, what's uh, what's the best part of living in Atlanta besides your beloved, obviously, Atlanta Braves? Um, one really good thing is the weather. Mm. Um, it stays warm about nine or ten months of the year. here, And I like warm weather. So I would say the weather. The worst thing is the traffic. Yeah. That's got to be bad. That's <laughs> awful. <laughs> All right. Next question. What's your favorite day of the week and why? <laughs> uh, Friday, because it's Friday night date night with for my wife and me. Nice. I love that. What's your favorite date activity with your wife that you could actually share on? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I would say uh, a fairly uh, classic date for us is Go out in the afternoon, get some coffee, head over to a bookstore, hang out and read books for a while, and then go out for dinner. Ah, I mean, I would like that date. Like That's that. a fun day. I like yeah. that. All right, last question. Um, if you could get on a plane right now at Atlanta, Hartsville International Air- Airport and head anywhere, where would you go? I would say um, Europe. We love Europe. Mm-hmm. And um now that I have this professorship in Amsterdam, I have commitments and connections and people to get to know better in Amsterdam. I'll be there in January, but to answer that question with what's top of mind right now, it would be to go to Amsterdam. Nice. 
I've never been to Amsterdam and I've always wanted to go. So fascinating city. Awesome. I'm looking forward to getting to know it really, really well. Wonderful. Uh, as we close, um, where can our listeners connect with you online? And then also, where can they get uh, not only after evangelicalism, but your newest book that's coming out soon as well? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a website that's really active and kept updated, uh, davidpgushy.com. And people can uh, email me directly there. Um, I believe the email is info at davidpgushy.com, but it's on there. It's on the site. I will, I will attest that you do check it because that's how I connected with you. That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, My newest book is called Introducing Christian Ethics. It'll be out on January 11th. Mm-hmm. It's with Front Edge Publishers. And it's going to be the first time I've done this. It's um, simultaneously going to be released as print, ebook, audiobook, and video lectures. Oh, wow. Um, so it's intended for use all around the world and it's accessible for regular people. It's kind of like essentially in the ethical realm, what do we now believe? And so it, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of my ethic and includes treatment of a lot of the issues we've discussed today. Wow. Wow. Well, hey, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm I'm always biased towards scholars because these are things that aren't just emotional responses. They are um, ideas and beliefs and pathways that are mostly rooted in uh, research experience and tradition. So thank you for adding our voice. Uh, it was a pleasure to, to be with you today, and I hope to continue the conversation with you. Thank you so much. It was just a real pleasure. And um, I, I think you're doing important work and let's keep the conversation going. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.